Welcome to Gays with Kids, a podcast about creating and raising families together. My name is David Dodge. I'm the executive editor of Gays with Kids, and I'm very excited for today's pod where we get to introduce you to our first ever GWK Hero of the Year, Ed Padel, and our two runners-up, Guy Gulata and Jonathan Miller. So June is always a crazy time of year for us at Gays with Kids <laughs> and for all gay dads with the double whammy of Pride and Father's Day. Um, and we're always looking for new and exciting ways to honor these two important holidays in our community. And this year, I think particularly after the year we've just had through the pandemic, we wanted to really celebrate the gay, bi, and trans dads in our community who are really just stepping up in service of their families and their communities and, and for themselves. So we asked you, our audience, to help us find some of these heroes by submitting nominations and letting us know a little bit about why the gay dad in your life deserved to be our first ever GWK hero. And we were overwhelmed with the response. We had submissions from all over the country. And I can tell you, we had a hell of a time trying to narrow it down to just eight finalists. Uh, but then we were able to turn the really hard work over to you all by asking you to vote for the stories that most touched you and inspired you. And that's what uh, landed us with our first ever hero, Ed Padel, who has been a foster dad to over 80 children in his life. Our two runners up are um, also just as deserving, Guy Gulata, a men's health advocate, and Jonathan Miller, who was a uh, paramedic throughout the pandemic. So um, you're gonna be hearing a lot more from each of these men over the course of this podcast. We're gonna dig into each of their stories, what they think about uh, being honored by their community in this way. Uh, but also if you haven't yet, please do go check out the videos of each of our finalists on our YouTube page at Gays with Kids, or you can go to gayswithkids.com and see them there. They really are just truly touching and amazing and it's uh, super inspiring. Although not surprising that we have so many people worthy of this uh, recognition this year. And I, uh, look forward to doing it again. This will be an annual tradition for us. Um, so look out for information about next year's GWK Hero as well. Today, we are joined by Jonathan Miller, who was nominated to be our GWK Hero by his husband, Blair Miller, and their three children, Zeke, Cash, and Jameson. Jonathan was a 9-11 first responder at the Pentagon, but for the last year, he's also been working as a paramedic throughout the pandemic at a local ER just out of DC. And he's also a current nursing student. So welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. How does it feel to be nominated by your family to be our hero of the year? David, thanks so much for having me. I, it, it's really incredible. You know, when I um, looked at those other guys, I was like, there's some really talented fathers that have done really incredible things. Um, for me, I, I was truly humbled by that, that I was even a um, finalist or a runner up. Uh, spoken like a true hero. <laughs> it's like whatever, what, literally everyone that we've nominated said the same thing, but you right. were all very worthy of it. So let's just t talk a little bit about what this last year was like for you. Um, it was obviously COVID-19 was left no one unscathed, but um, you were in the thick of it, on the front lines of it. Um, and so how has it been for you and your family? You know, it's... Uh... I've always felt to me like uh, I would do my job for free. I knew at a very young age that I wanted to be a firefighter and paramedic. And that was kind of what my goal was through life. Uh, right after high school, I went to fire science school so I could become a firefighter. And then I went to um, paramedic school. And I have uh, been a firefighter and paramedic in Charlotte. And then I went to Boston as a paramedic and then here to Virginia. And it's kind of a funny thing. So when we came to Virginia... I really thought I was going to be a stay-at-home dad. And my husband's a TV news anchor, so he covers politics in D.C. So we just thought that was going to be a good fit for me. Um, we had just adopted our third son. And probably six months in, I was like, I'm missing something in life. I need something more. So I realized that I needed to go back to work. So in January of last year, I decided to go back to work. And so that was before the pandemic, you know, that was in China. Wow, we, right, we before, heard, yeah. right. We had heard right. about it on the news. And so I had never worked in a hospital before as a paramedic. I've always worked uh, at a fire station or in an ambulance as a paramedic. And so I, uh, when I went back, it, I finished orientation right before the start of the pandemic. And then the pandemic kind of happened. And it, it honestly, for me was, it seemed like an almost an unforeal moment like that wasn't really happening like are are we really seeing COVID-19 cases um and honestly I did okay until one day I was driving to work and I was listening to CNN because I wanted to be updated because we were getting so much information our work did a great job of like keeping us 
communicate it, but it was kind of like they were building a plane while you're flying it, if you will. And so, but it, from the government, from everything, we, as you know, like we were just, there was no straight information. We weren't really for sure what was going on, but I heard this wife say that she, her husband was 45 years old and she was saying goodbye to her husband um, on the phone through a ventilator. And I thought, well, I, that could be me. What am I, I, it was the first time I've ever felt like going to work could hurt my own family. I was so scared. I was going to bring this home to my husband, to her three boys. Um, we talked about me staying in a hotel. We talked about me staying in the basement and we tried the basement thing where I would get undressed in the garage and I'd go to the basement and stay away from them, but that doesn't work when you have a seven, six and a four-year-old, they don't understand that, you know, or you can't hug daddy when he comes home. I actually had a really hard time with that to think like, I'm doing something I love and I know I'm helping people, but it could affect my family. And that, that was the biggest struggle for me. How did your kids handle that? Having to have some distance? You know, my seven-year-old is just, he's a thinker. And he would say like, dad, how do you know that you don't have the virus? Do you have the virus or are you sick? Um, and right before we we knew that COVID was in the D.C. and Virginia area, I got really sick, had to go to the hospital, had a temperature, didn't have the flu, didn't have pneumonia, but they weren't doing COVID tests. But like sick enough, I couldn't walk up the stairs. And this lasted for like 11 days and then I was okay. But I'm a sickness that like I have never had before. After talking to my doctor, they assumed like, the, hey, that was probably COVID that we just didn't test for. Um, so my kids, they... The uh, two of them did okay, but one was just, he was worried. You know, he wanted to hug me a lot before I left for work. Can I give you another hug? He, In his eyes, I was going to get the virus and I wasn't going to come home. So going back, you've been a hero in the eyes of people for a long time as a uh, Pentagon first responder. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Sure. Yeah. So I was uh, a brand new firefighter um, and paramedic right out of school. And um, I had come home from working night shift. And we got a notification that we needed to respond back to the Pentagon. And I had family visiting. Um, I was still living at home with my parents at the time. And it, it didn't really sit in like what was happening. We, I knew New York was happening, um, but I didn't realize the Pentagon at the time was connected, if you will. And so I remember responding there and we were really just in a holding pattern. You know, um, it was in Virginia where I responded from. And I can remember going there and it was a waiting game. Like you have all these paramedics and EMTs and police officers and firefighters and we, and we wanted to do something and we wanted to help. And they're like, we just have to wait. Um, and I will never forget the sound of someone coming on, like the incident commander saying, there's nothing else we can do here. Um, there's no more people to help. Every, everything else is uh, sadly is they're deceased. And um, I remember driving back in the ambulance that night and no one said anything. It was like a pin drop, you know, and at 40, that's still hard to process. But at 19, that was really hard to process. I remember my mom, it's, it's funny, COVID and 9-11 are similar in two ways for me. Um, I thought I was with COVID, I really was worried about bringing this home to my family and my family getting sick and, and doing a job that I really love that I would do for free that doesn't feel like a job to me. It's, it's literally like a dream come true for me. Um, and then on 9-11, my mom calling me and we are literally responding with lights and sirens. And she goes, you don't have to do this. You don't have to go there. I want my son to come home. And she still cannot talk about it with getting choked up is because she really thought that that was going to be, she was really worried about my safety that day. Of course. And, you know, thank God again, you came home safe from that as well. So you, you say that your current job is a dream come true. Um, that's incredible to hear. I, I'm curious what you think it is within you that seems pretty innate that has led you to a life of public service throughout your entire life. And you could argue that even in your route to fatherhood, adopting three kids. You know, I, I know from a young age, my great uncle would volunteer at the fire department and um, in the local rescue squad in my, a small town I grew up in in Virginia. And I... Uh, I always thought that was just so amazing that he would go help people. Um, and I remember the very first call I responded to, um, I was a volunteer at first started out as a volunteer firefighter EMT in high school. And it really, it, it like clicked for me, if you will. And it was that 
I have the opportunity to make a difference in someone's worst moment. You know, I'm the first person and I always tell, I've had the opportunity to train several EMTs and paramedics. And I say, you really are going into a situation where someone is the most vulnerable and you have the opportunity to really make a difference as cliche as that sounds, but you have the opportunity to, to make sense of their chaos, make sense of their tragedy. We can't always fix it, but we can be there with them through the, through their worst time. So let's talk a little bit more about your kids and your, and your path to parenthood. Have you always wanted kids? Um, or was this a discussion, long time discussion with your husband? I, uh, I always wanted kids. I always wanted what I thought would look like family. Um, my husband always wondered how we would do that. You know, he wanted to know like, what does that look like? How, how are we going to do that? And my question was, how would we not do that? You know, um, why can we not have what everyone else has? And if we want that, why can't we go for it? And so, I mean, we thought that even about our wedding, um, because when we initially got married, we got married in 2011 and same sex marriage wasn't legal at the time. And I go, I don't care. We're not doing that for anyone else. We're doing it for us. And that's what matters. And then a year later we adopted our first son Zeke. And so, um, I always knew that was something that was going to happen. And I didn't care how many people told me no, or was going to close the door. Um, we were going to do it. And to our surprise, absolutely no one closed the door. Um, I can remember, when we met with our adoption counselor, um, we were in our minds, we said, well, we know we're going to have to adopt an older child that is considered unadoptable, which are to me are horrible words. And she goes, no, that's not true at all. And I'm like, yeah, but as soon as someone realizes we're a same sex couple, um, that's going to be a problem in her exact words. And it's kind of funny as she goes, no, you can think modern family, um, the TV show, you're, uh, you're okay. You're actually in high demand right now. So we, uh, we got a, a case that uh, our agency had sent us and the child was considered unadoptable. And so that's why I really hate these words. And she said, it's had, uh, this child's had four failed adoptions um, during the nine months the mom's been pregnant. And by the way, wow. she's due any day. This was June 28th. Her due date was June 30th, two days later. And so I took a lunch break from work. My husband hadn't went to work yet because he worked two to midnight and we met at a bagel shop and we opened the packet and it was, I, I can't even explain it. It was just, we looked at the sonogram. We both started crying. We go, this is our son. We didn't know how it was going to happen. Um, we had no baby things whatsoever. Um, we had told our families and that's about it. Um, and this big event was about to happen that we were both kind of responsible for but it worked out perfect. We uh, had our son uh, July 8th, just a week later, and we were in California when that happened and we got to cut the uh, umbilical cord. So it was really special. And we have a great relationship with Zeke's uh, birth mom and she is very proud of his two dads, which we're, uh, is absolutely an honor. And I think that allows him to grow and be successful as an adoptive child. Our second son, mm -hmm. Cash, um, very, he, very different how we adopt. Um, his mom actually reached out to us. She found us. Um, so Cash was three months old when we adopted. And again, we have an amazing relationship with his mom. Um, and so we had two boys and moving to Boston from Charlotte, everything is smaller, especially when you're living in the city. We left a suburban house to a brownstone in the South End. And so we were like, oh no, are we done adopting? And we kind of thought we were, but then we decided to adventure out to Situate and we moved out there and um, we had a house with more space and we thought, well, I don't know, but we spoke at National Adoption Day um, in Boston. And as soon as we were done, the judge asked to meet with us and we're like, oh no, what did we say? What happened? And she goes, you guys aren't done adopting. Um, and I go, that's true. I don't think we are. Um, and so four weeks later, we were in, um, parenting classes for foster care because we didn't really know anything about foster care. And it was a misconception to us that we didn't think gay dads could adopt, um, from foster care. And so we were in those classes for eight weeks, um, which taught us how to parent after having two kids. So that was fun. But then we were, uh, we were matched just weeks later with our son, Jameson through foster care. Um, he had had kind of a tragic beginning um, that had some trauma and he had been through several foster homes. Um, he was 
found uh, near 93, which is a highway there in Boston and a stroller. And oh, um, so he's come a long ways. It's a lot of work to do, but he's, uh, he's growing and improving every day. And um, so that's good. And we've really been an advocate since then for foster care. There's so many kids that go unadopted. And so the one thing I would say, if there's anyone listening to this, it's like, I really want to be a parent, but I don't know how. Um, there is a way and you absolutely can be, but more importantly, there's a big need. Did you know when your husband nominated you or was this a total surprise? I did not know. No, I, um, <laughs> I came home from work and he said, um, we nominated you, um, for the, for gay dads heroes. And I thought, well, okay. And, um, I was, <laughs> my exact words is I'm. I'm sure there's some really amazing dads out there. <laughs> Why did you do that? Um, and so he showed me the video that my boys put together. And at the end, um, unprompted, my four-year-old said he, he rescued me. Um, and that as a dad um, and with his history, that really touched my heart. And so I was really, I, I will cherish that video forever. And that was uh, the best Father's Day gift I could get as I've watched that video several times. Um, you know, the most important thing as a dad for me is um, to make sure my boys know that they're always loved um, with adoption, um, whether it's through foster care, private adoption, or if it's, you know, however, there's so many ways that you can adopt a child now and whatever that looks like a child, a child is, is a gift. Um, if you can start a family, if that's what you want. And so I always want my boys to know that they're loved and they're valued whether, you know, just because they're adopted doesn't change anything. And so to hear their voices say how much I love them, that, that really touched me and really, that was really special to me. I, I can't thank you enough for all the amazing work you're doing. It's very much deserved. Um, congrats on being our first uh, ever runner up for uh, GWK Hero of the Year. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. We are very excited to be joined by Guy Gulata, who lives in Sherman Oaks, California, and was nominated to be our GWK hero by his husband, Eric Gold. Guy used to run a successful interior design business, which he left um, to raise his daughter Harper full-time and also to dedicate himself to being a men's health advocate. Over the last 10 years, Guy has had to undergo multiple surgeries to remove growths in his breast tissue, which ultimately resulted in a double mastectomy. Guy's also been very open about his epilepsy and also his struggles with depression and anxiety. And for that, um, his video really spoke to our audience and we're very excited to announce him as a, one of our runners up uh, for our GWK Hero of the Year. So welcome, Guy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Did you know you were being nominated or was it a surprise? Uh, so it was a surprise. Uh, yeah, I had absolutely no idea. Uh, my husband, I guess, submitted the video and then um, forwarded me an email. I was actually driving in the car uh, and I was like, <laughs> what, what, what's going on? What is this? Uh, and then when I got home, he kind of explained it to me. So yeah, it was definitely a little bit of a shock. For those listening, uh, you can see Guy's video and all of our finalists at, uh, on our YouTube page. So go check that out, definitely, if you have not yet. So it's been 10 years of surgeries. Um, can you just talk about what that's been like and what ended up turning you into an advocate for these issues? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so about 10 years ago was the first time that I noticed that I had a lump uh, in my breast tissue. Um, so I went to a doctor, got it checked out did a, a mammogram, which uh, a lot of these things I didn't realize men could go through or, you know, like a mammogram. I was like, there's, there's really nothing there for them to do that. Uh, so it was kind of very eye opening to me. Uh, luckily, when they uh, found the first mass, there was no cancer. Uh, it was just a growth. So they said that they were going to remove it. Um, and that's kind of when it started. So they removed it. I had a surgery. I felt great. Uh, pretty short recovery. And then six months later, another one came. And then I had it removed. And then a year went. And I kind of thought I was out of the woodwork. And it kind of just kept spiraling um, and getting a little bit bigger and a little bit worse. And uh, they had mentioned to me a very long time ago, you know, possibly a, a double mastectomy would kind of get rid of all of this. Uh, I was still pretty young at that point. Uh, I, I wasn't married. I wasn't even, you know, thinking about having kids. And so for me, it was probably a little more selfish on my end. Uh, I was just kind of like, I, I'm just not ready mentally uh, to do this. 
Um, fast forward, we moved from New York out to LA and we were married and talking about having kids. And I just realized at that point, um, this wasn't just for me. It was also for my family and for uh, our now daughter. And so I just said, it's, it's time. Uh, we found an amazing doctor out here and, and kind of just moved forward. And, and luckily, uh, I have had no issue since. And September 11th is actually my, uh, my four-year anniversary since my surgery. That's amazing. And congrats on that. Thank um, you. And how, how old is Harper now? Uh, so she will turn three in August. So our first transfer, which wound up being unsuccessful uh, when we were trying to have kids, was less than a month after my double mastectomy. So we were already in the process, had our surrogate, uh, had made our embryos. So the whole push for me to do this was because we were, we were about to have a child or attempt to. What was it about the double mastectomy that uh, scared you so much or what, that made you want to put it off? Um, so I think especially in the gay culture, uh, you know, image kind of is, is a, a place a pretty, a pretty big factor in, uh, everything. So I worked out every day. I really tried to stay in shape. And so for me, it was more external. I, I wasn't ready at that point. They didn't, you know, the technology wasn't there to keep your nipples or, or attempt to. And so for me, um, it was really scary with the idea that I was going to have these two lines across my chest. Um, it was a conversation I, I don't think that I was strong enough to already have with tons of people and I wasn't ready for those questions. And um, I also had time to recover. I, I was young. So in my mind, I was like, if I keep doing these surgeries, okay, I'm, I'm out of the gym for a month. You know, I can't do this. So I've got the time kind of why not. Um, and at that point, because they were not cancerous, my doctors were, uh, were okay with that option. Um, they tried treatments like medication. So at that point, it, it was more definitely the gay culture and, and just being scared to kind of admit that I wasn't gonna be, you know, look the way that I wanted to. For a lot of gay men, um, a month away from the gym is a sentence worse than death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's one thing to have gone through this journey on your own and to realize that you were doing, again, the surgery, not just for yourself, but for your family. But it's another thing to be as public about it as you've decided to be. Did you know at the outset you were going to be as public about it? And can you talk a little bit about how that's been for you and the, and the response you've gotten? So I, I don't think that I realized how public I was going to be. Um, until I had the surgery. Beforehand, I mean, all of my friends knew. I'm pretty active on social media, so I figured I'd, I'd talk about at least having a surgery or I'm recovering. And the crazy part about the surgery is our insurance company, I was in the hospital getting ready to have the surgery. They were getting ready to put the IV in. And the doctor came up and said, your insurance company has declined the surgery. And so it because in the the writing of our insurance basically was saying they only covered double mastectomy for women wow and it it was kind of a shock and so i had to leave the hospital and luckily my my husband works for an amazing law firm uh and they called them right away and was like this is this is not okay and they they reversed it um and so i had this whole week to think about it of oh my gosh, you know, I was so prepared to do this that I just was hit the ground running and I was just going and going and going and I never actually stopped to think about what was gonna happen. And I think that week is when I started opening up to be like, I think that I need to talk about this a little more. And then when I woke up that first time that I walked and looked in front of a mirror and I had this bandage wrapped around my chest really, really tight um, and you had to take it off and. I'll, I'll spare details, but there was drains and you had to clean it. And I'll never forget that first time I took it off and it was like a, a brick wall hit me where I was like, I don't look how I used to look. It's worse than I thought it was going to be. At the same time, it's not as bad. I was very lucky they were able to keep my nipples. Uh, they were they reattached them after the surgery. And so I think looking at myself and being so disgusted with myself and so kind of ashamed, like I had done something wrong. Um, and it took me a really long time to get over that and to feel comfortable taking my shirt off. And, um, 
And I just thought, like, I didn't have anyone to tell me I was going to feel this way after a surgery. And I was like, and I, I feel like it's my responsibility to tell people, this is how I felt. It's how I continue to feel. And I want you to be along the way with me as I try to get better and make myself feel better, you know, both mentally and physically. Um, and the support of people that came out after was pretty incredible. There was this guy, Ryan, on social media that wound up going through the same thing as me, um, who got himself back in shape, looked incredible. Uh, and for me, that was my inspiration. Um, and him just reaching out to me literally made the world of difference of me just feeling better, that I, I just wanted to make sure that if anyone had to go through this, they had my whole story and that I can answer any questions that they uh, that they might have. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the organizations that you're part of, the advocacy efforts that you have taken on? So one of my biggest charities that I've worked for is Movember. And so I've worked for Movember for, I'd say, close to 13 years now, kind of just on the sidelines, raising money. Uh, so Movember is a charity that raises uh, money for men's health. Uh, so prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and mental health. And so I, I kind of raised a bunch of money for them after you know, a few years. And so finally, they had reached out to me and asked me to be a community ambassador. And the first time that I had done it, my daughter was just born. It was pretty exhausting, uh, but Movember didn't really have a branch that focused or tried to include the LGBTQ community. Uh, it wasn't that they weren't doing that. It was just they didn't they didn't have that outreach. Uh, and so when they spoke to me, I said, yeah, but I would really love to kind of focus more on the LGBT community. Um, and so we threw a really amazing event. Uh, we had Lady Bunny come, we did drag bingo, uh, and raised a ton of money. And I, it, it made me realize that all of us want to get so involved um, in all of these different charities. You just need that kind of one person to bridge that gap and, and kind of get some more people involved. In your nomination video, your husband mentioned that you've also been very public about your struggles with mental health. And I assume that this is related in some ways to uh, the physical journeys that you've gone through. I think for me, even more than uh, kind of the double mastectomy and, and the, the struggles physically I've gone through, I think for me, a lot of uh, my advocacy comes from mental health, specifically depression and anxiety. I think that there isn't someone in the gay community that I've met that hasn't struggled with this, whether it was a short period of time, uh, a long battle that they've been going through. Um, and I think what really got me to start getting out there was the fact that I was getting so many messages on social media saying, your life is perfect. Like you have a beautiful family. Um, like, how do you do it? How, you know, how, how'd you get so lucky? Um, that I kind of felt this obligation to let people know that this is not this is not real life. No one really goes out there and says, my day today is horrible. They post, my day today is great. Um, and so for me, I've struggled with depression uh, from an early age and anxiety kind of trickled into that as I got older. Um, a lot of it had to do with, you know, suppressing who I was for so long. Um, being uncomfortable with who I was, being scared that people would figure out I was gay, so I didn't do the things I actually wanted to do in high school. Um, and it kind of spiraled into my every day-to-day -day life of, you know, just always putting a smile on my face even when I wasn't happy. And so I think that I, I felt an obligation to let people know, like, this is, this is something I struggle with. I go to therapy. I've I've tried uh, a ton of different medications. Um, my husband is incredible and very supportive uh, because it is not always the easiest for him to have to, to deal with as well. But I know that it starts with me. And if my daughter knows that this is okay, if you have this and you have these feelings, let me know. And I wanna make sure that everyone in the world knows this is normal, this is, this is fine. And if you get help, um, or you talk to someone or let someone know you are going to feel so much better on a day-to-day -day basis. What I didn't realize is being so public about it, how much it would help me 
just as much as it was helping other people because it took this weight off my shoulder of feeling like I had to be this like perfect fit in a box person uh, for everyone around me. And, you know, now if, if I'm not having a great day, I'm, I'm going to let you know. What was it like to find out that you were nominated for this? And what is what does it mean to have the recognition from, you know, other gay dads and, and people that are uh, within our community that, that voted for you? So, I mean, when I first saw the video, I cried. Um, my husband, uh, I think went above and beyond for this, even though he tells me on a daily basis that he appreciates, you know, what I do, uh, every day being with my daughter to actually have him express that to tons of people, uh, really was pretty amazing. But honestly, to, to see these stories of these other seven people, um, and then realize just how many people probably got nominated that have amazing stories like that. It really was just an honor to just be in the category with those people. I mean, seeing Ed's story was remarkable. And I was sitting there on that video rooting for Ed the whole time uh, <laughs> because he really is just an incredible guy. Uh, and his story is amazing. So just to be included in that group was really amazing. I am very pleased to be able to introduce everyone to Ed Padel, GWK's 2021 Hero of the Year and our first ever. He lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida with his partner, Ronnie Cooper, who was the one that nominated him. Um, and in his nomination video, which I encourage everyone to go see on YouTube if you haven't yet, it's very touching. Uh, Ronnie told us a little bit about why Ed is his hero. Ed has been doing uh, foster care for at-risk children for almost 30 years. And during that time, he has housed over 80 children three of whom he's adopted himself. Um, so, wow, Ed, that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. How does it feel to be recognized by, you know, other gay dads across the country that, that voted for you to be their hero to, that were inspired by your story and, and what they learned about you through Ronnie's video? I feel it's an incredible honor. I, um, I felt that I was sitting in the greatest of company. I was just overwhelmed to even be one of the top eight. Um, but I, I looked at all the other men that were sitting there with me and I just felt uh, amazed that I was able to be in the same company as them. I just was ecstatic about the whole situation. Well, it's very much deserved, as were all of your co-nominees. I can tell you we had a very hard time <laughs> trying to select that smaller group of finalists from all of the amazing nominations that we got, but you were very much deserving of the honor. Uh, so you do something called therapeutic foster care. I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the foster care system and understand what that means. Uh, but so what's the difference between that and therapeutic foster care? All right. Well, when I started foster care over 30 years ago, I started with traditional and conventional foster care. And um, they were just the children that were placed in care. And remember, the children are not placed in care of anything they did themselves. They're innocent. They end up coming into care because their parents make bad choices. But being in school, um, being in the school system myself, having been a teacher, a coach, a mentor, a guidance counselor, and even an administrator, an AP and a principal, um, and having an ESE background, I noticed that a lot of the kids that were in care weren't just the average conventional and traditional kids. They were called the at-risk kids or the kids that were difficult um, placing in homes. Unfortunately, some of the words that were used sometimes were like the unadoptable kids or the mm. kids that nobody wants. Yeah, And that's what created my passion to want to be that type of a foster parent. And I felt with my experience, I would be able to handle those type of kids. Um, my mother always said I had the patience of Job, and I felt like it was a gift that was bestowed upon me because I have a way to reach these type of kids, and they respect me and admire me. But I think that you have to be a role model, and you have to talk to them and make them feel like they are real and know what their interests are and what they desire. I think, you know, all too often um, adults talk down to children and we need to sometimes look them just straight in the eyes and say, hey, you know, you're a person too and I respect you. I know you have feelings and I know you have emotions. Let's talk about it. 
And I felt like with therapeutic children, um, I was able to teach them interventions and strategies to deal with their frustrations and their anxieties. And um, thus, that's what gave me the passion to do therapeutic care. That's incredible. Um, and so what got you into the foster care uh, world to begin with uh, almost 30 years ago? Wow. Um, that's a, a question that people ask me a lot. Uh, approximately 35 years ago, I was teaching fourth grade in an inner city school. And um, I was always um, given the roughest of the rough kids by the principals because they felt I had that personality and what we call with itness. Um, some teachers have, they call it with itness. And um, they placed a boy in my class, he was a fourth grader, who had been struggling for the four years he was at the school and really had made no connection with anybody. And I feel like um, perhaps there was no connection with anybody because nobody ever reached out to him or found out his story. And I took the time to get to know him. And um, back then when they removed children from foster care, they simply would come into your classroom and they would come in with a police officer, a school resource officer, a child advocate and the principal. This young man had been familiar with foster care. So the minute they opened the classroom door, he saw what was happening. Of course, I had no idea what was happening. He jumped out of his seat. He ran up to me. He wrapped his arms around me and he said, Mr. Fidel, please don't let them take me. Please don't let them take me. And he started crying. And I actually started crying too. And later I got in trouble from my principal for showing emotions when I oh, wasn't supposed to do that um, in front of the children. Um, I didn't really understand what was going on. So I said to the policeman and the advocate, you know, can I just take them home with me? Like, can I, what can I do? He's bonded with me. He's a great kid. He just needs somebody that, you know, will watch out for him and guide him. At that point, they proceeded to tell me that I needed to take um, certification classes to become a foster parent, in which I did. And, um, about eight months later, I had finished all the required courses and received my cert certifications and reached out to them and tried to get that child back. By then, unfortunately, he was lost to the system mm. and um, his ending was not a happy one. That's so tough, but it inspired you to do, obviously, uh, what you could for over 80 children over, over the next 30 years. Did you have at the outset, did you go into this thinking that you would be providing a home to so many children? I always saw myself um, as being a humanitarian and, and wanted to help. Um, if you asked me 30 years ago if I was ever going to adopt, I would tell you, no, I was enjoying being a gay man, being <laughs> on the circuit, dancing, carrying on, going to the clubs, hanging out with my <laughs> friends. Um, but, you know, you get to be a certain age in your life and you start to look at things differently and... Um, you, you know, you say to yourself, what can I do to make a difference or how can I impart my wisdom on others? I continued to do foster care. Lots of times I had sibling groups, um, which can be fun. And um, unfortunately, I had many children who could have been adopted by me earlier. However, gay adoption was not a choice. Right, right, right. And it, especially in Florida. Right. And also, you know, we had some child advocates who were old dinosaurs and they believed that children in foster care needed a normal home with a mom and a dad and not a single gay man. They felt like it was um, not a good fit. I also faced the obstacle of having a child of color and being told that I wouldn't understand their needs and their culture or how to take care of their skin and their hair et cetera, et cetera. Um, as time went on and um, I had already pretty much made myself a pillar in the community and people know, knew who I was. So I continued to do foster care. Many times I took children who were in the NICU and had them from birth. And mm -hmm. so my first adopted son who will be 11 in August was the first child in my home to come up for adoption after gay adoption was legalized. Oh, wow. His mother's rights were terminated and she basically said to me, I want you to adopt my son. You know, she said to me, you know, 
God has spoken to me and said, you bonded with my son and he belongs to you. Are you willing to, you know, take him? And uh, I was, of course, I was extremely emotional. He was my first baby, you know, um, and he had me from the time he was four hours old. So I adopted my oldest son, who was Stephen. Um, after Stephen and I were together for a um, couple of years, Stephen looked at me because I continued to do foster care. And he said to me, Daddy, I want a little brother. And I was like, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> but um, another little boy came into our home, and that is my second son, Jordan. And so it was Stephen and Jordan and four other children that I would be doing foster care for. And many of these children were on case plans to be reunified with their parents. And then Stephen and Jordan decided they wanted another brother. And that's where Jacob came into the picture. And we adopted Jacob last November. So he became part of our forever family. We continue to do therapeutic care. Right now I have an 11-year-old boy and a 13-year-old boy. Do you still stay in touch with a lot of the other kids that have come and gone through your house over the years? Or uh, has that been a difficult part to form bonds with these children and then see them uh, leave your home, so many of them? Um, you know, what's beautiful and what has worked out for me is that I would say 90% of the children that have come through my home are still in contact with me. Many of them are older wow. now. They come home from college and um, some of them are adults with children of their own. They still grace my door at Christmas time, Thanksgiving. Um, most of them, 20, 30 years ago, it was Mr. Ed. That's what they called me. But I would say the past uh, 15 years, everybody that's come through the door, from day one, it's been daddy. So, um, and I think that's because they hear my own calling me daddy. And I think that they search for that male figure. When they're in your home, you need to give them that guidance, that structure, and that love. But you also need to be ready to let it go if it needs to be let go. I think part of being human is dealing with emotions, but always letting them know when they leave that you will always be there and that you will always care about them. And when they get older, your home is their home, so they can always come home. Florida was one of the last states to approve gay adoption, doing um, adoption as an openly gay man. For as long as you have, you've probably had some instances of uh, discrimination or people saying things about your uh, rights or abilities to be a good parent. Um, have you seen a lot of discrimination over the years? And how have you seen the system change over the 30 years you've been in it? Well, I would say over 30 years ago, it was very, very discriminatory. And also you had a lot of child advocates, guardian ad litems, who um, did not see gay men as being a fit or uh, a viable solution for foster care. We were kind of like looked down on or the only children that were placed with us were the problematic children or the children who had been casted to the side or considered not um, a fit for a traditional home. But I have seen it change. And I think that it changed because we as gay men really stepped up and showed them the potential that we have. And um, when you put children in care in a home of, of two gay men, two gay women, um, the children flourish and they thrive. And I feel strongly that all of the couples that I know here in Fort Lauderdale that are same sex, both male and female, provide that for them. And therefore it changed the vision of many child advocates and the powers to be in the Department of Family Services. So they see us now as an alliance and a lot of times we are requested to be have children put in our homes. Where do you think this comes from in you, that you, this ability uh, and desire? Your, your partner, Ronnie, said the same thing, that it just seems to come naturally to you, this ability to connect with kids that um, uh, are coming from some tough backgrounds and to be giving them what they need. Where, where does that come from within you? I think a lot of the nurturing that comes from me came from my mother. I think like um, my mother was a humanitarian, um, always involved in community projects, always reaching out and helping others. And I think that that characteristic was bestowed upon me. 
But also I remember um, from a very early age, I think it was in third grade that I knew my passion was going to be education because I had some amazing teachers. And I've always said, when you are a child going through school, you will always remember those teachers who impacted your lives. There are two in particular you will remember, that one who changed your life and the one who made your life a living hell. And those two teachers will help mold you to become the person that you've become. And um, fortunately for me, I had some amazing educators who took me under their wing, uh, one in elementary school in particular, one in middle school, and two in high school. And they basically set the path for me. Um, I always did community service. In fact, when I was in high school, I won the community service award. It was just something that came from within. I enjoyed it. I have a passion for it. And I like to see the results as well. If that wasn't reason enough for you to be our GWK Hero of the Year, <laughs> you also um, work with a nonprofit, a local nonprofit that delivers food to uh, people living with disabilities. Uh, and you also provide mentorship for youth that you aren't even fostering. <laughs> so the list goes on of the, you know, clearly this kind of altruism is deep within you and uh, you're being recognized for exactly that reason. Uh, but so what do you want to say about some of the other work that you do, some of the other advocacy uh, nonprofits that you work with locally? Um, the nonprofits that I work with are to help feed the homeless, one, one in particular. Um, I pick up food on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, and Sunday mornings, and I distribute it to shelters with women and children, as well as homeless. Um, the beautiful thing about it is now my oldest adopted son likes to come with me, and he whenever we're riding or we see someone panhandling or something, he's like, Dad, give him money dad, give them food. And um, so I get to see the fruits of my labor being passed down to my children. Um, that's one of the things that I do. Um, another is um, mentoring. One of the uh, particular pictures they showed on my GWK um, finalist thing was uh, I had a, um, it was in a high school and um, I was the administrator there and I had a white party and all of the kids in the school dressed up in white. <laughs> amazing. And, um, it was just amazing. Like I was just able to um, open their minds and open their hearts to show that people live other ways and that everybody deserves to be loved, whether it's by a male or a female. And I think the younger generation, believe it or not, are more open to things like this. And they don't cast judgment as 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 hard as the older generations do. I love that you uh, are bringing some of your old uh, clubbing and and circuit days <laughs> to your current life with the white party. That's that's amazing. I love that. Um, so on top of all of this, uh, you are also a cancer survivor, and I can only imagine um, going through that while also you know for for any parent it's going to be difficult, but um, to be parenting children who are coming from certain backgrounds, I imagine that was even tougher. How are you doing now and anything you want to say about what that experience was like? Well, I'm currently in remission, but I still go for my appointments every three months. Um, what can I say about cancer? Wow, people can empathize and sympathize with you, but nobody truly knows what a cancer patient is going through. You need to have a support team that is phenomenal you need to have a reason to fight. And my reason was my boys. I just wasn't ready to go anywhere. But the fight was intense. The chemotherapy and radiation is a pain that nobody would ever understand or feel unless you live it. A lot of people had compassion for me and said, you know, I know what you're going through. Uh, you did not know what I was going through. I would often crawl up in a fetal position. My skin was gray and ashy. I was fatigued. I was constantly vomiting. I lost 60 pounds. It was just um, an amazing journey. I had my colleagues start a meal train for me. They came to my house. They cooked for my kids. They brought them to school. Uh, you just need that support team, be it family, be it friends, be it colleagues, whoever will reach out and help you. 
if I didn't have Ronnie, I would have never made it through because his love for the boys and his love for me persevered through everything I was going through. He looked after those boys. He took on an extra job because we were having financial struggles. He just, he was there. And you know what? I looked back at everything. I said, you know what? This man really loves me because if you can stick with someone through something like that, then you do care about them and you do love them. And having him as well as the community behind me helped push me through it and persevere. But with the grace of God right now, I can say I'm in the remission. Everything is good. And I try to look at the positive of everything. And the positive for me was I have a new outlook at light on life. And I'm 60 pounds lighter. <laughs> There's silver linings for you. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, I'm simply elated that the committee um, chose me as a finalist. And um, I want to thank the community for embracing me, um, listening to my story, understanding it, having compassion and sympathy. Um, also, I want to thank you for voting for me and making me the first GWK hero for 2021. It's an um, honor that I do not take uh, for granted. Um, I would like to use it to my benefit and um, do great things and continue to do great things for the community. But I also want to shout out that all of those other men who were honored with me are just as amazing. And any one of us would have made our community proud. So gentlemen, I sat in the best of company and I applaud you as well, because please continue to do the phenomenal work that you do in your community. And remember, it's all about teamwork. Together, everyone accomplishes more. Thanks everyone for joining us. I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about each of these inspiring heroes and all the great work that they're doing. I also just wanna quickly thank our sponsors of the GWK Hero Program who put together an incredible package of gifts to help honor uh, these great men and all the work that they're doing. Um, and that includes gifts from Wonder Kicks Cookies, Evenflow, Wink, Cybex, Minimies, Kudos Diapers, Bomba Socks, Dad's The Book, a gift from our store, of course, and um, a gift from Skip To It. Thanks to each of these sponsors, and we really look forward to doing this again next year, and we'll see you in the next pod.